Well, hello, Chris. Hey, John. And welcome to you and to anyone listening to another episode of Saul Searching, the podcast where we recap the latest episode of Better Call Saul, AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, which just aired its ninth episode of its second season. So here we are, Chris, episode nine of ten for the season, which was uh, written and directed by Peter Gould, not just the co-creator of Better Call Saul, the show, but I think in a lot of ways the originator of Saul, the character on Breaking Bad, because he's the one who wrote the episode in which Saul Goodman first appeared. What did you think of Nailed? I liked it. I had a good time. I uh, uh, It definitely had some some strong stuff and and brought it back up somewhat from uh, we were you know lamenting up to now is this show getting a little slow or is it kind of low stakes uh, we were a little worried and uh, this you know it didn't have gargantuan blockbusters but it definitely to me felt like okay I'm I'm having enough fun right off the bat it answered a question that we had from episode eight which was, what is Mike's plan? But I don't think we were really in that much suspense about what he was making. It seemed very much like he was making a, I don't even know what you call that. I think we called it a tire spike. I've heard people call it a road spike. I've heard people call it a spike strip. Yeah, we kind of assumed this must be for tires, especially since he heard the uh, tire gun at uh, Hector's garage. And uh, because otherwise, what is, unless you're going to beat somebody to death with a, a hose full of nails, then uh, it's got to be for tires. But that was cool and fun to see him in the full ninja outfit. Yeah, he was pretty much a ninja, and um, I enjoyed seeing a little bit of lightness with that uh, delivery guy. I thought it was fun to see him kind of bopping along to a, a pop song on the radio. And I did a little digging around. That song is apparently called Mi Cuckoo, and it is a little bit of a slang term for like me, me, me bum bum, me, uh, me, me butt, you know? Uh-huh. So in the song, I believe it's a guy kind of extolling the virtues of a woman's uh, cuckoo and her saying, don't mess with my cuckoo as the kind of uh-huh. call and response. So you are so diligent on research. You do so much looking into everything. I hope the audience appreciates the time you put into that. Especially because after this, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's really not another show that that I delve into like this. So after after week ten, I I expect to just sort of sit in the dark and recharge for a little while. Maybe just start uh, on Matt Houston. Like every tiny, you know, go back to Matt Houston and every tiny little detail you can find about anything. Uh, look it up. I actually thought Amazing Stories was a good show maybe to do, and that's not a joke, because it's finite. And I thought, oh, maybe if I can talk Chris into recapping every episode of Amazing Stories with me, uh, you know, after doing this. But then I watched some Amazing Stories, and I found that uh, it's a pretty uneven show. So I, mm. I, I think there would be a lot of, you know, we've worried that we're too positive about uh, Better Call Saul. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think we would be a little too harsh about Amazing Stories if we were being honest. I think there would be some bad episodes. But I mean, even ones that you thought were kind of okay would probably seem corny now. And I think that that's probably best left in the past. The other thing is Amazing Stories is not available anywhere. If it were on some streaming service or something, maybe I would say, let's do it. But I'm not even going to twist your arm when we basically would be saying, hey, find this illegally somehow. Right. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, but speaking of things uh, being found illegally, Mike sure found all that cash in those tires, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way to bring it back. Did the blue car seem significant to you in the sense that we know that's not Mike's car, and we know that Mike must have just driven a car that's not his in order to conceal his identity, but they made a point of the driver seeing the blue car? That's the only detail that the driver would have left that situation with. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that detail seem to point to something that might be more significant? Oh, well, you've got one uh, on me there because I did not uh, even register the blue car or the driver seeing the blue car or anything like that. So, uh, but you're right. It could be that uh, maybe that's a way for them to have Hector 
uh, find out who's behind this. Although it seems hard. If, if Mike did just, like, steal that car or something, then, yeah, it's a tough trail to follow. We know he drives around in that maroon car. So that it was the fact that it was a blue car, to me, just says, okay, maybe they just wanted us to realize that Mike would not use his own car. But they could have also just not shown us the car at all if they wanted us to think Mike has it covered. I guess what they wanted to show us was the setup of what Mike was doing and that he was going to be in one spot and he was going to be pulling the road spike from another spot. And I think that right. that was something they needed to set up the geography of. And I think the, the sign that the car was parked next to was sort of there to provide a reference for that. Right. But yeah, I just don't know. Like, it seems that showing the car and making it so clearly not Mike's car, in my mind, seems like it might be connected to something. But many times I have seized on a detail like that that turned out to just be the show being interesting and throwing in a little extra detail. So maybe the point was just, see, Mike didn't use his own car. Right. And then we're done with that. At any rate, the way that scene plays out is interesting because Mike does something very sort of ethical. And it's only later that Nacho points out um, uh, you know, that he's the only person he knows who would pull something like this off, but not kill the guy. Right. But Mike got in trouble two ways. One, because, yeah, he left that calling card without meaning to. So now Nacho knows about him. And the story of the Good Samaritan is just horrible. And now Mike has to deal with that. I mean, Nacho's at his wit's end with Mike at this point. Right, he almost pulls a gun on him. But I mean, I thought that was really interesting to see. Like, Nacho just thinks Mike is this crazy old man, you know, who, who doesn't doesn't know how to handle things properly. Right. Did you get the impression that the driver is currently being held uh, with the idea that he was in on the scam and that, that Hector's going to try to get some information out of the driver? I couldn't tell, like, what we were supposed to think was the culmination of, as far as that goes. Right, I, I don't know where that's going, but yeah, he did mention... Uh, somebody on the inside. So, th- yeah, you might be right to think that they are all worried about who in their organization did this. So that could theoretically mean that the driver then is in danger. I'm just trying to think of what Mike's actions for the last episode are going to be. Let's just walk back through his motivations a little bit. He was trying to strike out at Hector very deliberately. He needed the money for, for Stacy and Kaylee, but he also was still pissed off that they threatened his family, I think. Right. I think that, well, yeah, I think it's kind of for revenge, which we didn't know until, to me anyway, I didn't feel like I knew what he was doing or why until this meeting with Nacho. I was like, why didn't you just stay home and call it done? You're out of danger with Hector. But instead, you made a tire spike and and dressed up like a ninja (laughs) and went out and did this thing. And I think it's kind of for revenge. He's like, you can't... uh, get one over on me like that and and make me tell the police it was my gun, I'm going to ruin your operation. And then we find out in there that he really was wanting the police to start nosing around the operation. Uh, and so he was trying to, he was trying to alert the police to the existence of, of the Salamancas. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that whoever was caught between that rock and that hard place, whoever that good Samaritan was, they, that it would be easier to just get rid of them. Uh, than to pay them off or to deal with their witnessing something. But yeah, that's that's some pretty cold-blooded stuff. Um, and earlier in the episode, we saw Hector very upset when the delivery guy seemed to not be showing up, or at least that's how I read that scene with him ranting and raving around the uh, the yogurt place. Which, by the way, I did a little more digging around, and I think El Griego Cuyador, it might mean the winking Greek. <laughs> really? Which could be a brand of, like, Greek yogurt. I think it's an ice cream place. You don't think it's an ice cream shop? You know, it could be—I honestly don't know. It seems like maybe they also serve uh, sandwiches and soup. (laughs) 
we see Hector kind of uh, storming around when the delivery guy doesn't show up. That was an interesting reveal that he's already got some sort of blood pressure issue or something because he gets upset. Yeah, he looks like he's having an attack. I thought maybe he was having his his stroke right then. Well, I was sort of glad they didn't play that in such an offhand way. Mm -hmm. Mike got an idea or at least filed away the information that Hector has a bad ticker or high blood pressure or something. Mike's darkness and Mike's underbelly was something that really stood out to me in this episode. And I, I just realized that we don't really know... Mike, as well as we might like to think we do, he's not the kindly granddad. That's a face he puts on. He's not the the hangdog, uh, uh, you know, parking lot attendant. That's a face he puts on. There's something else. And he's not a guy who only acts in reaction to other. Because to me, I felt like before the tire spike caper that he was out of it and he could call it even. But instead, he... He decided, I've got to do more to these guys and and stir up this hornet's nest some more. So he's not somebody who just acts in reaction. We just don't know what he was before tragedy shook him to the form that we see him in. Yeah. And I I think that when we see him sitting out in the car and he's got that predatory look and he's taking down all these facts, he's he's a super, super smart, uh, malevolent presence in a lot of ways. And I think that's interesting. Like the skewed morality of this world of, of... Vince Gilligan and Peter J. Gould's Albuquerque is very, I mean, we are given to moments of sympathizing with killers and horrible people. And we're also given to seeing how nasty the supposed nice guys can be. Yeah. Before we move on from Mike, I did want to mention, um, did that waitress uh, offer to let Mike shovel her drive as a as a come on? <laughs> yeah, that's a flirt. You You can do a bunch of hard labor for me anytime. It's a weird euphemism. But he knew, hey, we're having fun here, and it, it gave him a little smile. Yeah, it did give him a little smile, and then the next second, uh, you know, he has to take out his uh, his humongous flip phone uh, because Nacho is calling him. So I think that is an interesting little beat to give Mike. You know, it's similar to him buying the round at the bar, I guess. We saw a Mike who was kind of happy and feeling kind of full of himself a little bit, I think, at that moment. I guess so. I wondered in that moment if he was, like, trying to attract the attention of the Salamancas be like, I wanted them to hear that there's a guy throwing his money around and then to realize it's me and then to to uh, come out and then I get to kill them in self-defense. But I guess it really was just him feeling his oats. I mean, what's weird is at the end, the lesson would be what? Kill the guy? That's just such an odd thing. Like, what would Mike do differently now? Is he just going to start killing people right away? We keep talking about this, but when, when do he and Jimmy reconnect? It is pretty odd to go if we go all the way through the end of the season and haven't reconnected them as as two characters who are associated in some way. Um, this is pretty odd uh, to have these two main characters that that uh, are on their own tracks for so long. I mean, I will say that's one thing that the fact that this is a prequel makes excusable on some level. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think the show rests on that on that too often, and so I would think there's there's got to be more of a partnership coming between the characters. But um, moving on to Jimmy, or I should say just moving on to the McGill brothers and Kim, I found myself kind of continually wondering how much Chuck was asking for it and how much we're watching this, seeing this as a little bit of just desserts for Chuck due to his pomposity and his short-sightedness. Yeah. How did you feel about watching what happened with Chuck? And and was it Jimmy's lowest scheme ever? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it was. Maybe it was his lowest yet because I think that's pretty rough to do that to your brother knowing uh what a harsh sabotage it is and then seeing what he goes through in the room with the uh banking commission or whatever they are 
That was a nightmare. That is his exact area of expertise, the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T, you know? <laughs> right, and he knows that he's right, and they know that they're right about the address, and he knows that he's right about the address, and so it's really the worst. Yeah, and, and, and the way that he's pompous with Paige, and he instantly couldn't believe that he was wrong. And in fact, his conviction that he has to be right is part of what made him, you know, in a Sherlock Holmesian sense, like totally figure out exactly what happened, pretty much. Right, he knows he knows he's right, and so that's why he knows... That's that's how it dawns on him. Oh, this is some sabotage, and who could have done it? There's only one person that would do this. So Chuck is a little bit asking for it karmically, maybe just in the sense that anyone with hubris is asking for a a, a fall because he he doesn't have to quite be so Chuck about things, but he is. You know, like there is something about him, and I think Michael McKean plays it perfectly. This this wounded intelligence and and seriousness about himself. Yeah. So the moment when he tries to shut Paige down is so ironic because, of course, we know what's going on, but seeing the way he tries to dismiss her, it's like, well, now now, kind of retroactively, you're asking for this embarrassment just a little bit, you know? And I felt the waves of anger coming off of uh, Kevin Wachtel, the, uh, the, the head of Mesa Verde, the way that he's looking at Chuck. Chuck went from this super skilled professional that we're glad to be in business with to this kind of doddering blowhard. I thought that was painful to watch. Yeah. To past you and me saying the stakes aren't high enough on this show, I will say this episode did a great job of illustrating what we were saying, which was that if it seems really important to the characters, then it seems important to us. And, you know, with all the subjective shots of what the electricity is doing to him and stuff. But not just that. I just mean the scene was very much you were feeling Chuck's nightmare of being called out and being wrong on something that is so in your wheelhouse. Everything's collapsing in on him. And it's like the personal drama. You know, we were talking about the seemingly low stakes because to us it's like, oh, who cares if some bank goes with a certain law firm or opens their new branch? It seems like the least interesting thing in the world. But then when you show within that the personal drama, here's how a character uh, goes through – their own little nightmare of the worst thing that could happen to them. Uh, and you get, you know, exciting camera angles and everything. Uh, that's what brings it back to feeling like a, like high stakes. Yep, exactly. And it happens really within that scene because I feel like I remember specifically a few lines early in the scene where they were like, you know, I, I don't remember what mumbo jumbo it was, but something to the effect of, you know, we're now addressing the contract of the uh, line item nine. Uh, you know, they they had two and a half lines where I was like, oh boy, is this what we're getting into? This is so boring. Oh oh oh, this is this is going wrong, and now oh, it's going horribly wrong. So it was a good roller coaster. This time last year, we thought, what an asshole Chuck is, and this time this year, we're thinking like, oh, poor Chuck in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it's not an uncomplicated poor Chuck. Mm -hmm. The meeting between uh, Jimmy and, and Chuck and Kim, what was your impression of that moment? And did you see it as a little bit of a, this is when Sherlock Holmes explains it all, or this is when the he's called these people to his home to say, I bet you're wondering why I've called you here, and I'm going to explain it all to you. you know? Right. <laughs> and he was right about pretty much everything. He was, yeah. He he knew what he was talking about, but he was only intending to talk to Kim and and have a speech of like, you need to know what your boyfriend has done and what you're getting into, what kind of person you're associating with. But Jimmy came uh, along, and so he's like, well, just as well, I can say this to both of you. And uh, so he's just trying to save her. Uh, but then to me, the biggest drama of it is seeing what she does and we uh, combined with her 
punching Jimmy in the arm after they get outside, we know that she's thinking, wow, Jimmy probably really did this as she's listening to it, but she knows there's no evidence. And so that's pretty. That's a pretty uh, dramatic turn for her to say to herself, I've got to go along on Jimmy's side here and pretend that he probably didn't do this and save his skin and my own skin by saying what I would say if I totally, you know, because she's living a lie in that moment. She's, she's pretending that she doesn't uh, believe Chuck and that he actually screwed up. And so she gives her little speech about how, Chuck, you made him that way, and uh, I blame you, or, or uh, uh, and I, I pity him, and I, I feel bad for you as well, or whatever she goes through to put that across. So she's she's a little more in, in Jimmy's uh, world now. We kept saying, what's going to happen that's going to drag her down into the morass of his methods, or is sharing an office with him going to have her be so close to some, some shady doings that her reputation is going to be ruined or something? But this is a much subtler and more personally involving way that she digs herself in deeper, because I, you're right that she lives a lie, but she also speaks truth to Chuck in a way. Right. I felt bad for Chuck in that moment, but it's not a good gaslighting if you don't lose your shit at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've felt it. I'm sure you have. We hope we don't feel it again. That moment where you sound crazy because you're so invested emotionally in what's going on. So I think Chuck at this moment has the disadvantage of being a a sick guy who has these special conditions. It all coalesces into an impression of Chuck that I'm sure Chuck has been fighting. Yeah. And he really didn't make the mistake that, that it looked like he made. But it's easy for people to believe that he made this mistake. And I think Kim, in saying you're here working by gaslight, she's sort of living the lie, but she's also letting Chuck know, hey, now you're the one who looks bad. You're the one who has a disadvantage, and no one's going to believe what you're saying. And it's a little bit of a warning. It's very... I mean, Kim shows a lot of strength in that moment, even though we could say she's wobbling morally. She's taking Jimmy's side, I think, in a very crucial way that feels like development for her. And I thought it was interesting that Jimmy can't really get a purchase in this conversation, like the grown-ups are talking. I loved when he said, uh, uh, Chuck, I, I think you need to lie down with a cold washcloth on your head. <laughs> that was just such a such a sad attempt. Like, you're having one of your, your sick spells, and I'm trying to help you when really— He's just done a horrible, horrible thing. If the lie is like a zip line, Jimmy's going to just hop on it and just ride it all the way down until he yeah. has to until he has to come up with another lie or until he has to say, okay, look, I was lying, but, you know. And he seems to have the strategy of, uh, some people are, it's like uh, avoid as much as possible ever actually telling the lie. So through all that scene and through the whole episode, he never says, I did not tamper with the numbers. I did not sabotage those papers. You know, he, he, he only says, you know, like the kind of thing when, when you say to someone, you did such and so, and they say, I can't believe you would accuse me of that. Right. Without saying, no, I didn't do that. I'm interested in the fact that Kim isn't just saying, all right, we're through. I guess at this point, she's too in with him. She's too, she's too in with, I mean, she's literally in bed with him. Maybe they wanted that conversation to happen (laughs) while they're in bed because she's literally in bed with him. But she also is the one who puts the bug in his ear about going back and covering his tracks. Like the way that she manipulates yeah. him in that moment. And I'm not saying, like, I, 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 I was, like, loving Kim this episode, so I thought it was great the way she just indirectly says, have you really thought of everything, smart guy, you know? Yeah, because she's just said, we'll never talk about this. Let's never talk about this. But then it's like, okay, but she needs to communicate something to him, and so she just says whatever she says. Boy, that Chuck sure is smart. You, some, If someone did something, they would have to cover every possible track. 
I mean, A, like Chuck, she's right. He did he did leave that open, and it does seem like the guy was already telling Ernesto that the the that Jimmy was there. So it you know, there there is this it's truth, but if he hadn't been there and he hadn't bribed the guy, um it wouldn't have turned so badly for Chuck. So I just think that's an interesting way. It doesn't take away the fact that this is still the consequence of Jimmy's uh, malfeasance, you know, and Jimmy's shadiness. But I like that Kim is involved. And I think there's a part of Kim that doesn't want to lose that client as much as she wants Jimmy to feel the weight of what he did and how she doesn't approve. She also doesn't want to lose that client. And I think that's really interesting that that's the way to refer to what we were saying earlier. That's the way that they brought Kim into his, you know, to roll around in the dirt with him, so to speak, as Jimmy was saying to Chuck earlier in the season. Right. So she's a little bit more complicit now, and which we always knew. I think we always said, well, she's probably either going to have something horrible happen to her and be in his wake, or she's going to be a little bit complicit, but not totally with his scheming. And that, And they've brought her to that point now. Before we get any further in Jimmy's story with his cover-up and everything, let's mention the uh, film crew uh, going to to the school uh, to get the flag shot and everything, because that's fun. And uh, I think that that kind of guarantees, you know, he just, he's, and he said this episode, oh, my, my commercial's airing tomorrow. So surely this last, uh, next episode, we're going to see the first uh, uh, Jimmy McGill TV commercial that really airs and really has his his level of showmanship. Yeah, he's going for that coveted uh, diagnosis murder demo that's going to be watching that show the next afternoon. Right. And it seems like a big build-up, and a part of me would say, ah, I don't need two episodes of you teasing the creation of the commercial. That almost feels kind of cutesy or something. But it's been so enjoyable seeing him slowly put it together. Yeah. I love seeing those the film guys pop up, and I love the new, now we have a makeup artist who has a great moment with Jimmy where she, she doesn't quite see how to go along with his patter. Right. Um, so all that was fun and great to see, but it did feel odd in the middle of this intense, serious episode. But no, we're walking away with something much more dire. Um, how did you feel about that? What, what was your reaction uh, when the sickening, cracking sound occurred uh, uh, as Chuck bangs his head on the edge of a table in the copy shop? Yeah, sickening is exactly the word for it. But then uh, maybe more than that, the moral dilemma of watching Jimmy watch from across the street and they leave you on the exact second, you know, when you would be in limbo of saying, okay, I've either got to run across the street like any human person would to be next to his brother, or I've got to stay over here in the shadows to save my uh, hide and my girlfriend's career. And so they really leave it on the exact moment to just make it the worst puzzle terrible and if you're a person watching the show wondering when does jimmy cross the line into something yep. less savory or when does he become this guy who's accepting of his shadowy status right but do you think he he already lingered long enough to seal that or because to me it the show was saying now's the moment to decide and the end but you think maybe we we watched him linger too long and that it before the end, already pushed him into, like, oh boy, this is, he's terrible. Well, I mean, there's possible outcomes of what happened to Chuck. I feel like if in the first moment of the next episode, we see Chuck halfway sitting up or swooning, that lets Jimmy off the hook to just slink back into the shadow for a minute and then receive a cell phone call and then pretend to come to his side as if he was had just gotten up out of bed, you know? I'm really interested about Chuck's potential fates. 
because I think there's two or three different ways it could go. My thought was Chuck could be dead. Right. Chuck could be alive, but addled and experiencing some kind of memory loss or some kind of, uh, uh, you know, personality change or something. Or worsened, yeah. Or he could be in a coma. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I feel like the writers and the creators of the show are not trying to get rid of Michael McKean. But I don't see Michael McKean staying on if he's in a bed going, uh, for a season or anything like that. Right. So if Chuck is in a coma or something like that, he suddenly becomes backgrounded through Jimmy's story later. And that, again, gives Saul Goodman a tragic element if we know that his brother is, you know, sitting there in a bed somewhere. Mm-hmm. But that feels, I don't know, anticlimactic to do that to Chuck somehow. So I, I'm going to read. We, we actually got some listener feedback. A friend of mine from college who listens to the show, Darren, uh, sent me a message uh, speculating about the what might be in the finale. And I thought it was a good springboard for this conversation. He says, $10 says the commercial gets changed to Saul Goodman before it airs. I bet Chuck dies mm. and Howard forces Jimmy to drop the McGill name. And Mike is so pissed they killed the Good Samaritan, he shoots and maims Hector. And then I mentioned to him that I could see Chuck being in a coma as well, but just being backgrounded and that being part of Jimmy's kind of tragic story. And then he says, I can see a coma for Chuck, but a death is more fitting for a catalyst pushing Jimmy to become Saul. And then he says, force that buyout that Jimmy wanted in season one. Remember when Jimmy was trying to buy out Chuck's portion of the firm uh, in the in yeah. the very beginning of the show, and that seemed like at the, uh, they've never really returned to that. I don't know if the writers are done with that right. notion, but there was a time where Jimmy was trying to get Chuck sort of declared incompetent so that he could cash him out. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he thought his brother could never come back. We've seen Chuck definitely rally and come back or try to. Mm-hmm. What what's your feeling about Chuck? Do you think uh, do you think Darren's right? Do you think Chuck's dead most likely, or do you think it would be odd? To kill him that way? How do you feel? I don't think that he's dead. Um, I just think he's going to have a hard time and it's going to cause more trouble for them going forward or and and then eventually some opportunity for reconciliation. I just think that they're going to have an ongoing relationship. And But this is just guesses, you know. And I also don't think that he can change his name on the ad before the airing uh, because he's already, you know, probably sent the tape to the station and everything. It just seems too quick. It's it's we've we've left the show the night before an 11 a.m. airing of the commercial or something. So I think that's a bit much to expect that he's going to have a name change before the end of, of, of next episode. But I had been thinking it's going to be strange to see a commercial that looks like a Saul Goodman commercial, but him saying Jimmy McGill. That's going to be strange right. to see. Right. And yeah. and it does seem like arriving at him using the name Saul Goodman at the end of the second season would be the type of right. the type of button they like to put on there. Exactly. It's a perfect time for that. It just seems too late. But who knows? Maybe they figure out a way that we uh, can't quite fathom. But uh, but it also seems like yeah, if if Chuck is. Uh, you know, in the hospital or recovering from a concussion or something, are we going to, you know, have Jimmy look over his shoulder and see his commercial airing the next morning as he deals with all that or what? My 10 bucks would be that the opening is the commercial next week Mm -hmm. at the cold open before the credits is just the commercial. Yeah. I hope that there is some real resolution to what's going on with Chuck 
and Jimmy and Kim. And I do have sort of a pet theory. I didn't know if you had anything else you wanted to say that was more of a prediction before I get into my pet theory. Well, I did want to say that I, I, I do feel like I could see them somehow by the end of episode 10 saying, oh, and this is how Jimmy and Mike get uh, embroiled with each other again, you know, or at least you feel like they're about to be or something like that. That just seems like you would have time to maybe try that and, and entice the viewers with the feeling of, Oh, now they're now now these two characters we've been following and liking are going to be repartnered coming up here. Well, I mean, the season does seem to be a season-long attempt to keep them apart as long as possible. And that does get into some of those ideas of where the show might be going and just how revealing you would expect a season to be. I don't know if we're going to see a resolution to Jimmy and Kim or their practice in one episode, but we could see a resolution to the issue of Jimmy using his name. There could be some entanglement in some way that at the end he's there's a mention of him changing his name or something. I could see that. Right. I agree with you. I don't see it happening in time to change the commercial. And I don't see... Um, Chuck necessarily being dead, but it would be a bold choice to say he's dead or he's dying after that. Yeah. But my prediction, I think that Chuck is going to be addled. It could become part of the dramatic tension that Kim benefits from this deal with the bank. Jimmy escapes without having to deal with Chuck's accusations. Maybe he would have seemed crazy no matter what, but Chuck being sidelined to me says Chuck doesn't have to be dead to be this person who symbolizes the fact that Kim is now, as you said, living a lie that Jimmy created and that and that Jimmy is profiting from that too. I think it's almost more compelling dramatically if no one ever really finds out, but it just exists in the minds. Kim knows that Jimmy did this. Jimmy knows he did this. Chuck knows he did this. I think that's more interesting going forward than it having some immediate payoff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To say that that's just kind of always hovering out there, the fact that, that they know what happened and nobody else does. Yeah for someone like Kim, who actually did sort of value her ethics, it may represent a little bit of a slide towards something less stable or less savory. But I think it's just, it just kind of, again, makes her more interesting that in that moment, she sided with Jimmy over Chuck, and she's willing to kind of see that through now that she's made that choice. When she said to Jimmy, I don't want to talk about it. um, She meant, I don't want to hear your side. (laughs) You know, that didn't mean she didn't have a little say about it. And he's really at a disadvantage. He doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. He can't really say much to her about what's been going on. Yeah. So anything else uh, going into next week? This is, like I said earlier, this is our last chance to wonder what might happen this season. Uh, I think I can leave it at that. Well, until next time, folks, for the last time, please get your feedback in. You can email us at saulsearching at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at saul underscore searching. And for now, this is me, John, and my buddy Chris saying, I talk. I talk. I talk.